from verse 12 through verse 18, and we'll continue the rest uh, later. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, Rejoice in the same way. Share your joy with me. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word. We also thank you for your Holy Spirit who discloses to us the things that you tell. I pray that this morning, Lord, as we open up your word, there would be no confusion. There would be no tangents, there would be no uh, getting caught off guard on other things that are less important. I pray that you would bring us to the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ and there, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see the reward. Ask for transformation tonight, Lord, for that person maybe who feels like they're spinning their wheels today, that they're doing all the right things and yet they're not feeling any closer to you than they were before. Perhaps they're feeling even more distant. I pray that you would heal them today. For those that simply don't have motivation to, 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 to be on mission and to, to jump into your kingdom work, I pray that you would give them incentive, Lord, in the, in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that today you would wake us up to what you have done for your church. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have a lot of verses to go through. We're going to go through the rest later. There's about, I think, 18. Um, Don't let that intimidate you. The entire message is situated upon the first two verses of this chapter. Or not the chapter, but the section that we're going through. Everything else comes out of this place that Paul is describing in verse 12 and verse 13 when he's describing sanctification in the life of the Christian. Paul right now is warning, as he often does, against counterfeit gospels, you know what I mean. There is a gospel, and there are fake gospels that we sometimes love to crowd around, Um, maybe to fit our whims, or because they fit maybe our circumstances at the moment. Paul is trying desperately to keep good people from veering off to a counterfeit gospel. Now, I'm thinking of two types of people in this building, uh, including myself, one, You're wired a certain way. Maybe you are more of that solid foundational type person. You really love to think things through. You're super cautious about stuff. One might describe you as maybe strategic. You're just that kind of person. You're very methodical. You like to think things out. You like to strategize, think things through approach, cautious. On the other end of the spectrum are 
those who are more dynamic and visionary. You don't often think things through. You like to act according to your gut. Um, One might describe you as very active. You love to be active. I can probably find you just active in every ministry that reality has to offer. Um, You just love to do these things. You're kind of sporadic, or you might be bold. You just have that bold approach to Christianity. There's these two types of persons, the ones that are just a, a little more laid back and the ones that are a little more outgoing. We need both of you in the church. Those are good things. However, the purpose of this, uh, this morning is, is that we might see that all of those things, as good as they are, all of those things are entirely dismantled and poisoned once you remove the gospel from them. That means all of your skills, all of your gifts, your spiritual gifts, all of the things that you're prone to do, good things become poisoned and tarnished once we, we remove the gospel. And even as Christians, subtly, it can be very easy for us to disregard the gospel in our day-to-day life. I'm not talking about when we gather for Christmas and we remember the gospel. I mean minute by minute, day by day. You're at work, you're with your family, you're with your spouse, you're with your loved one. Paul is trying to warn us two things. He has this sense when he says, now, much more in my absence. I I know what you were doing back then. I know you were obedient back then, but more in my absence. In other words, I don't want you to dwell on what you were doing before. I want you to dwell on what's ahead. And he has two things, it seems, that he has in mind that he's trying to keep us and the Philippians from going towards. One is veering, veering away from the gospel. The other is just stopping, He doesn't want us to veer. He doesn't want us to stop. He definitely doesn't want us to backtrack. He wants us to plow ahead, as that's often Paul's just mentality when it comes to the gospel. I want to fight the good fight of faith. So he writes this letter, preemptively exhorting the Philippians, warning them ahead of time, okay, this is where you're going to be inclined to go. I don't want you to go there. So by every stretch of the imagination, the Philippians are doing wonderful, right? I mean, by Paul's own sterling recommendation, he says, beloved, you have always obeyed. Can you imagine Paul, the apostle Paul, saying that to you? If you were on the stage right now going, reality, ah, my beloved, you have always obeyed. Gosh, thanks, Paul. Okay, let's pray. We're out. We just want to just kick up shop. I mean, such a wonderful just exhortation and encouragement coming from the mouth of Paul. Comma, he's not done. You have always obeyed, but much more so in my absence. See, what Paul is trying to hint at, and this is something that a lot of us do not make a connection with, is that salvation spans, the course of salvation spans your entire life. Sometimes we think of it, right, as, oh, I got saved. When did you get saved? Oh, I was, you know, 1987, back in the day. You know, I came to the Lord during the Jesus movement, and those were the days. What are you now? I don't know. Salvation is still going on. There is a a, a moment of that salvation that occurs once and for all. We like to call it justification, right? You have been made just in the sight of God. What happens with that? 
Jesus Christ dies on the cross, spills his blood, takes on the wrath of God, and there's that what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He exchanges your sin for his perfect righteousness. And so as a Christian, when it means you're justified, that happened once you put your faith in Christ. You're able for all time to stand before God who is holy and enjoy him in all of his presence and in all of his glory, even though you sin. Because think about that, right? How many of you just instantly changed overnight once you put your faith in Christ? Said a little prayer and immediately your, your clothes just started turning color and you just stopped having those thoughts. It wasn't like that. Maybe, maybe for a couple of you. I'd like to meet you. For the most part, it's a gradual progress of the Lord causing us to be formed into his image over time by the power of the Holy Spirit. We call that sanctification, the, prog- the continual process. We get into trouble when we start mixing those two up, you know what I mean? When we start trying to be sanctified in order to be justified. Oh, I'm going to be conformed into the image of God. I'm going to obey. I'm going to walk in what he's called me so that he'll be pleased with you. No, 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 no. He's already pleased by grace alone, through faith alone. So what's the difference between these two, justification and sanctification? Justification is what God sees you as Sanctification is what God is making you to be. So you could say that sanctification is the experience of salvation. You are then being able to, you're able to experience that which has already been given to you. Says this in verse 12 and verse 13, he says, my beloved, work out your salvation. So in other words, I know you were doing great, you were uh, being obedient in the past, but I am more concerned that in the future, when I'm gone, you will, look at this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's that sanctification process. We could think of that as him saying, I want you to work out the experience of your salvation, literally bring it to its conclusion. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that's a weird combination of words. (laughs) I want you to work out, because God is at work, in you to work, so that you could work out. Wait, what? (laughs) What What Paul is trying to put on display right now is both the experience and the hand of God combined. You are working out your salvation. There's the experience. You are to bring it to complete. You are to experience God's salvation to the fullest extent that's possible. And yet it's God, by grace, enabling you. He's even giving it. Paul says right there, he's the one that gives you the will to do so. Apart from God, we wouldn't even have the desire to follow after him. He gives us the will to do so. And so grace and experience Meet head to head unless you understand the gospel. And you're able to differentiate between God's work and our work. Any acts of growth, any Christian behavior, any spiritual disciplines that we try to accumulate for ourselves will always be inclined to veer to the left or to the right. Specifically, 
depending on how you're wired, you might feel more geared towards, uh, veering towards quietism, I call it. Quietism is depending on grace without experience. It's depending on God to move without you doing a, a single thing. And some people are like this. Sometimes we, we stress God's grace at the expense of human responsibility. Oh, God will do it. God is in control. Bless God. God will take care of it. I read the story about the world-renowned uh, missionary, William Carey, as a young missionary, was thinking about going to India to start planting churches and preaching the gospel. And he got pulled aside by this grouchy old minister who said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Sometimes how we think, right? So glad William Carey didn't think that way. And I'm so glad. Perhaps we will not either. God's sovereignty does not forego human responsibility. We sometimes have that mentality of let go and let God. God will take care of all of it, and yet he saves us to be involved in his mission. He saves us that we might be active, though he is the one being active within us. Cautious Christianity is good. It's good to be cautious. It's good to have people that are... uh, mindful and think things through and strategic and solid and foundational and have their heads screwed on straight. But all of that turns into quietism once you remove the gospel. On the other side of the coin, you have pietism. If quietism is depending on grace without experience, quietism is depending on experience without grace. So you would read this verse if you were... uh, fumbling into pietism, you would read uh, verse uh, 12 and 13, but you would leave out half. You would be concentrating on work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Forgetting that it's God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. So there's some that fall on the other side of the coin that say, that, that stress human responsibility over God's grace. Sometimes it might take a more subtle face. We don't always notice it. I don't even notice it in my own vocabulary, but I find myself saying things like, have I surrendered everything to the Lord? Have you placed everything on the altar? Have you, have you surrendered all of it? Of course not. If I did, I'd be perfect. Hello? <laughs> I don't even know my own deceitful heart, according to Jeremiah. My heart is deceitful. I don't even understand it. I need a Lord and a master to be king over it, to intervene into my life and to send me the right way. It is God who is at work in me both to work and to will for his good pleasure. As he does that, I joyfully enter in and actively engage in working out my salvation with fear and trembling, working out the experience of it, bringing it to completion. But it's that attitude, that pietism attitude, that active Christianity, of course, is good. I love seeing just passionate people wanting to go everywhere, wanting to end child uh, slavery and trafficking and feeding the poor. Those are things the Bible commands us to do. But do you understand, if you remove the gospel from that, you're simply a pietist or a humanist 
Active Christianity turns into pietism once you remove the gospel. And really, pietism is simply legalism with a pretty mask. Looks good. It has a, a, an air of piousness. But it is at its core legalism. I want you to notice that Paul, as he's speaking in this verse about human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, never seems to veer, right? He never seems to go too far into either one, though we love to. Some of us love God's sovereignty. That's all we talk about. Others of us are just all about just speaking about doing, doing, doing. Paul never seems to veer too far to either side. I mean, look at this verse. It doesn't even make sense. Work out your own salvation because God is at work in you to work out your salvation. What do you mean, Paul? Work out my salvation or God is at work in me to work out my salvation? Yes. (laughs) Here's the thing. I don't think most of us start off by veering immediately. You know what I mean? I don't think we wake up in the morning and we're like, okay, how do I become a legalist? (laughs) How do I screw up everything and how do I totally miss the gospel? I don't think any of us do that. I don't think we wake up just veering off course. I think we start by stopping. I think that's generally how it happens. We stop. For example, this is what I mean. Sometimes we view Christianity or this journey of of Christianity as a staircase to heaven which it totally is not. If it's anything, it's more like a skydiving adventure where Christ comes down to us, puts on flesh, brings us back up to him because we could not. But this is how we think of it. We sometimes think of Christianity as a staircase. Okay, immediately upon getting saved, it's the gospel, right? How do you get saved? Oh, the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He rose on the third day. You need to believe in him, confess him as your Lord and Savior, follow after him at a great cost to yourself. Yeah, And don't you love people who just get saved? I love being around those people. I want to be around them all the time because they're so excited. It's like they don't even know anything else except what Jesus has done for them. Their vocabulary is so simple and small. The only three words they know is Jesus, grace, and the cross. Jesus, grace, and the cross. You try to rope them into some crazy theological discussion. You're like, oh, what do you think about this hermeneutical, situational, theological predicament? (laughs) I love Jesus. (laughs) I love that. But something happens along the way, right? Whether it's someone telling them something or whether it's something that we've kind of adopted for ourselves, there's something that just kind of clicks or unclicks, I should say. We view it as a staircase. The first step is the gospel. But something happens in our mind. Oh, now I'm maturing. Now I'm more gospel-centered. The gospel, that was, you know, grace. That stuff is for, you know, beginner Christians. The cross, all of that stuff. That was like Christianity 101. Now I am advancing in my spirituality. And so we advance up the staircase to Life groups, oh, I've arrived. (laughs) I am level two Christian. And then we keep doing that. Oh, step three, now I am plugged in and I know people. I'm no longer falling through the cracks. Oh, I am such an uber Christian. And then step four, oh, I speak in tongues. Oh, I know how to play the guitar. Oh, I'm serving in every available ministry. Oh, look at me, yeah. (laughs) And we start just hoarding this stuff. 
That's all it is. It's just stuff. And we've forgotten the gospel. And part of me wonders if it's because we think that we've grown familiar with it. We get bored with stuff we've grown familiar with. But how in the world can you grow familiar with the gospel? One iota of the characteristics of Jesus Christ is enough to exhaust the minds of mortal men and we think that we've grown familiar with such things? I think what we're growing familiar with is our own religion. We have forgot the first step and the reality is if Christianity were a staircase, which it is not, every single step on that flight of stairs would be the gospel. You were intended to reach 97 years of age still being enamored by the grace of God, the blood that he spilled for you on your behalf, and the wrath of God that was taken off of you and put onto his son. All of those things were meant to get you stirred up for the rest of your life. Not other things. Oh, singles ministry, yeah. All of those things are, most of those things are good things. But they are not the things. We usually find ourselves sometimes stopping and from there, once we lose track of the gospel, it's so easy for us to go either to the left or the right. It's why Paul is so emphatic about the gospel. Always putting Jesus Christ on a pedestal, always putting the finished work of Christ on the, in the foreground, never going too deep into other things, always bringing back the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And when the gospel is prevalent in the life of the Christian, pietism is absolutely destroyed. It's destroyed by this verse. If we can get this verse, pietism is destroyed because pietism says, I am passionate about my passion. I'm zealous about my zeal. I really love that I'm into stuff. <laughs> and so we just happen to attach it to Christianity. Yeah! I'm passionate about Jesus. No, I'm passionate about my passion. Jesus just happens to be there. But the gospel recognizes where our passion comes from. And I am passionate about how much God loves me enough to display his power even in my weakness to both desire and obey him. And even though I can't do either of those things, God enables me to chase after him. He knows that he is my ultimate reward. He opens my eyes to see him in all of his glory and in all of his beauty. And then he enables me to chase after him like a little kid. Sometimes we'll view verses like this. We'll only read that first half, as I mentioned. This is often the go-to verse when we're suffering from legalistic tendencies. Oh, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. We have in our minds sometimes just this visual fear and trembling, like God is just above us waiting to beat us with a stick if we don't, if we don't do it right. That is so not the gospel God is already completing your salvation. He's calling you to engage in it and to experience it for all the wealth that it consists of. Sanctification is unlike pushing a boulder up a hill. We often think of sanctification as that. Oh, I gotta work out my salvation with fear and trembling. We, 
we often view of salvation as like pushing a boulder up a hill, but it's not like that at all. It's more like rolling a boulder down a hill. There's an unseen force causing that to happen. You're running along with it as it's happening. That's your salvation. God is at work in our hearts to make us more like Christ. And yet we are called to gladly obey. Quietism is also destroyed by what we see in this verse. Think about it. Being passive or overly passive, complacent, lazy, uh, quietism, none of those things can breathe in the same room that the gospel is being understood. If grace is real, how in the world can we possibly just sit around? The person who the gospel has connected with them, they've understood what God has done for them, have a godly fear and trembling. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not, say, he's not saying be scared. He's speaking about this awe. He's speaking about this holy reverence that one would get when they understand, oh man, I seriously can't do a thing about my salvation If it were left up to me, I would be going in this direction. And God, if he were to stay his hand for one moment, I would be doomed. And yet he never lifts his hand. Paul isn't telling us to be scared when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's doing it in you to do and to will for his good pleasure. He's calling us to a joyful dependence on a God who loves us dearly. And Paul does something else. As he's starting to unravel the gospel in these first two verses, he begins to show how the gospel in community begins to eradicate and free from bondage certain things that we experience when we're in a group. I'll throw out three things because I think Paul does. One, discontentment. Two, complacency. Three, individualism. These are three things that people generally experience sometimes when we get together with other people in community. We're discontent with what we have. We're complacent around others. And we're individualistic. What Paul is trying to throw out there that these things are examples of, of things that get immediately addressed and engaged in by the gospel and they just simply can't be there. This is why he says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why do we grumble? Because we don't have something that we feel like we deserve. What happens in the mind of a person who's understood the gospel? We know that we don't deserve anything. The breath that I'm breathing this morning, I do not deserve. I don't deserve my next breath. I don't deserve my next day living in this earth. Everything that I have is a gift of God's grace. Discontentment cannot exist in a community that is thriving with the gospel. Paul is issuing contentment as an evidence of the gospel. Then he addresses complacency. He says in verse 16, hold fast the word of life. The gospel arises in the believer a sense of persisting, 
Remember, it's Paul that's trying to guard us from, from going off to the side or stopping. He wants us to be persistent in the goal. And third, he offers sacrifice. As opposed to individualism, we live in an area and in a culture that is highly individualistic. It's all about our way of doing things. It's all about our point of view. It's all about our ambitions, our dreams, our thing. And in verse 17, he says, even as I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I share my joy with you all. These are some of the things that you tend to see when a gathering of people get together centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once said, the stamp of the saint is that he can waive his rights and obey the Lord Jesus. These are evidences. Now even now as I'm listing off some of these things, contentment, persistence, sacrifice, Perhaps some of you are taking notes furiously and already in your heart you're like thinking, okay, okay, what do I got to do? Okay, contentment, yeah. Persistence, yeah. Sacrifice, okay. Okay, I got to do these things, three things. Okay, Lord, yeah. Got to be content, got to be persistent, got to sacrifice myself for something. Go now. so easy to hear stuff like this. It's almost like our inclination. We just want a three-point list of stuff to do. That would make Sunday morning real easy. <laughs> Here's the 10 things you need to do. Everything will be swell. If that's what you're doing. I want to say this just with all the love in my heart because I do this too. That's not the gospel. You do that and you've missed the gospel. These things are not things that we are called to do in order to please God. The gospel is good news. Why is it good news? It's good news because God has done for us what we could not do by ourselves. I cannot be content with what I have. I am not a persistent person. And I would never give myself up for anybody apart from the grace of God. These are evidences of the gospel being worked in your life, they are not the means to get to God. This is God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. When those things come along, we wrestle with fear and trembling. We experience our salvation by walking in those things and experiencing the joy that those things consist of. But they are evidences, not means. For example, my wife, Brianna, gets off work at the same time that I do. But depending on who gets home first is depending on whether she goes for her run or her jog or yog or whatever it's called. I don't do it. <laughs> and call me a little silly or childish but I can tell, and I get more excited when she's home because I just love having my wife to get home to. I look for little signs that she's home. Sign number one, porch light is on. Good, check. I open the door. Immediately, I see her, her, uh, her little ballet flats right next to the door by the mat. Okay, shoes on the ground, sweet. 
I'm looking for more evidence as the next one is awesome. All of a sudden, just this aroma of food is just, just wafing, just, okay, someone's cooking in my house, awesome. Final evidence. Wife's cute little blonde head just peeks over the railing. She says, honey, I'm home, yay, yay. Little things that I look for, you know, when I'm coming home that just kind of make my day. But do you notice those things aren't a means in themselves? It's not like I get all excited about my porch light being on. Or for example, if it were any of you, like if one of you were to show up in my house and you had your shoes on my carpet and you're cooking me food, that wouldn't have the same effect. (laughs) Actually, it'd be pretty weirded out. Because the prize of my life is Brianna. And all of those things are simply evidences that point to her. They are not a means in themselves. In the same way, we do not practice contentment, persist, or offer sacrifices as a means in themselves. They are simply evidences that we have been changed by a better love. No wonder Paul says, I rejoice, share my joy with you all. Let's read the last half of this section, verse 19. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. I I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. He was longing for you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Yeah, but God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. As Paul begins begins to shift gears, remember those first uh, two verses, verse 12 and verse 13, about what God does in the life of the believer. He is now putting to test in community. In other words, the gospel was transforming individual lives. The gospel also transforms community of believers. And that's always the route it goes. We don't enjoy God to ourselves. We're to spill it out on each other. He gives a couple examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus enjoying their salvation. Now, Timothy is a nobody. By every stretch of the imagination, this guy is a failure according to worldly standards. He is sick often. He is too young to do what he's doing, according to Paul. He is often shy and timid, according to to Paul. He's a perfect candidate for a possible quietist, retreating into his corner, not doing anything, just letting the Lord do his course, or maybe Paul. Perfect candidate, and yet we do not see that happening. 
Paul is able to call Timothy a kindred spirit, someone with genuine concern, someone with proven worth. He even calls him like a child serving his father. This isn't because Timothy has it all together. Timothy is a failure, a failure that has been transformed by the gospel of Christ. What about Epaphroditus? What an awesome name. Epaphroditus, by Paul's writings about him, seems to be just this young guy who's radical and involved in everything, loves to travel for Paul. And while Timothy is a paid clergy member, Epaphroditus is just a volunteer. He's doing it all for free. He's straight, blue, uh, he's straight grassroots. He's passionate. He's a perfect candidate for a possible pietist. And yet we don't see that with Epaphroditus. Paul ends up calling him my brother, my fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's a minister to my needs. He's longing for you. He's longing for Christ. He came close to death for the cause of Christ. He even risks his life to complete in service what was deficient in you Philippians. What happened to these guys? They've been marinating in the gospel and that's all they know. The bottom step where the Christian is never to move until Christ brings them home. I want to end today by addressing one last concern that there are clearly some of you and I know, I know you, you have been obeying. You have been obeying without a reward. That begs the question, what, what about those, you say that there's joy in gospel obedience, what about those who have been obeying their whole lives only for things to get constantly worse? How many of us know people that there's no silver lining at the end of their day? They obey God and they, get, they seem to get scandalized for it. Seem to suffer for it. What about those who go on mission and they die for their faith? Where's the joy in that? Then there's a scandal of the cross, right? Imagine Jesus, most beloved son, giving his life in pure, unadulterated obedience to the Father. And not only was he rejected by you and I, but he was abandoned by his Father. That turned out great. And what incentive does that offer us to obey God when even his beloved son did it? And that's what it got him. I want to tell you this morning that it's precisely because of what Jesus' obedience got him and us that we find reason for obeying. And it's really important that we see this morning. Hey, look at me. I'm right here. Can't miss this, my friends. It is extremely important that you recognize the difference between happiness and joy because they are different. <laughs> my happiness is based on whether I had a cup of coffee to drink before I came to church this morning. For the record, I didn't have one. <laughs> but joy is, faced, is, is based on faith in Jesus Christ 
and is given supernaturally by the spirit of the living God. And you can experience both, happy, experience both happiness and joy at the same time, but sometimes you can experience one without the other. Often you can experience joy without happiness. And isn't that the tale of the Christian life? The world offers you happiness. Spirit of God offers you joy. No wonder Paul, after all that he suffered, would be able to say in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Not rejoice in your income tax return. Not rejoice in your 401k. Not rejoice in your plans. Not rejoice in your spouse. Rejoice in the Lord. He says in the same chapter, I know how to get along when I'm broke. I know how to get along when I'm rich. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through my five-year retirement plan. No, because those things will fail you, right? I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. That would explain why there are people today with cancer who are still able to worship God. I can think of a few. That would explain why people seem to joyfully march to their death. They may not be happy about the flames, but they're overjoyed with their Savior. That's why we have a faith that John describes in 1 John as one which is able to overcome the world. It's not because we have great faith. We don't have faith in faith. We're not passionate about passion. We're not zealous about zeal. We have faith in Christ. Jesus was able to do what none of us could, perfectly endure the cross for the joy set before him. And you are his joy. And now we're told that Christ who did everything that we could not do is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Hebrews puts it this way, consider Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Someone went before you in this and in obeying Christ at a great cost to yourself, you will experience joy which the world will never be able to offer you. What they offer you is a ripoff and a counterfeit of a far greater thing. I want you to contrast this with something like pietism or legalism where your joy is locked up in your actions. You know what that lends you? Well, if you don't make your list, if you don't check it twice, if you don't do everything, if you're nice, not nice, your joy crumbles because it was founded on that which you were able to do. What if on the other, on the other leg, you uh, contrast that with quietism, your joy is locked up in your freedom, your passivity. But the gospel states that the joy and the motivation that we have, even the obedience that we're able to engage in, is dependent wholly on the finished work of Jesus Christ. My question tonight is, are you enjoying the process of being brought closer to Christ? Because that's all salvation is. Are you enjoying the fact, despite circumstances, despite the fact that you might be suffering, are you enjoying the fact that you are being brought closer to Jesus Christ? If you are not thoroughly enjoying your sanctification, I don't mean are you happy. I don't mean put on a fake face. 
We can grieve, but deep down inside, if you are not enjoying your sanctification because it brings you Christ, you have thoroughly missed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't want that for the church, and I don't want that for us, because Christ is an unfathomable prize for humanity. Our problem, even as I say this, perhaps some of you are still inclined to be like, okay, yeah, 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 I'm not doing that. What do I need to do to see more of Jesus? Christ is the author and perfecter of my faith. What do I need to do to to get closer to him? And that's still not the gospel. God is the one that works it in us. Problem is that sometimes our hearts are veiled to Jesus Christ, right? We are often inclined to veer to the side. Once you get your eyes off Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of your faith, you will veer to the side easily. We need more of Jesus. What do we do when we can't seem to see him in all of his glory? I want to close with one last verse in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Paul says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is what Paul is saying in a nutshell. The veil is taken away when you turn to the Lord in repentance. That's what you do. The only way that veil is taken off is when you turn to the Lord. The only way that you can turn to the Lord is by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom to do such things. And when you are face to face with the glory of Jesus Christ, you become transformed. And that is the sanctifying experience of the lifestyle of the Christian. Becoming more and more like Jesus. Engaging in his mission, not because you have to, but because you desperately want to. Because your treasure in this life is the king of glory who claims that he will make all things new. And he calls us, by his grace, to partner with him in the most exciting mission on the face of the planet. Are you all in? Let's pray for the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, what a crazy tension to know that you call us to confess you as Lord. You call us to repent. You call us to obey even. And yet we can't even do those things apart from the enablement of your Holy Spirit. And so we're asking this day that Spirit of God, you would fall afresh upon our hearts today. I pray that you would open open our hearts, Lord, that we might repent, that times of refreshing might come upon us. I pray for the person here, Lord, that maybe is in bondage to rules, and lists, and the law. I pray that you would, for the first time even, free them from that bondage. That we might be able to experience, Lord, what it means to walk in freedom, what it means to obey you for your glory, and even for our own good, that you only call us to do things that are ultimately for our good. 
Maybe some of us haven't done anything, Lord. Maybe we've been lazy or apathetic or lethargic, and I pray that the grace of God would aliven our hearts, Lord, to understand that you gave everything for us. I pray, Lord, that our immediate response, our natural response, would be to give everything to you at a great cost. We don't want to waste our lives, Lord. Whether we're 18 or 97, we want our remaining breaths to be for you, Christ. And I pray at the bottom of that, the gospel would be so evident. We would never leave that place. Lord, that if we have left our first love, you would bring us back to the place from which we had fallen. We would see the things we used to do at first and we would enjoy them thoroughly, just like a little kid on his daddy's lap. Bring us back to that place, Lord. Open our eyes to see Christ and no other thing. Jesus' name, amen.